This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time, and we have another interesting guest that's going to change the way you think about your new year, because this person is going to help you and me as we talk together. She's going to help both of us with the concept of mental toughness. And she is a person who is mentally tough, raised on a ranch in Wyoming. Now, I don't know if you call yourself a profiler. I'll ask you that in just a minute. But Lorraine Kwai is a person who worked with the FBI and worked with spies, my friends, so she knows about mental toughness. Thanks so much for coming on board, Lorraine. Thank you so much, Chuck, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun talking to you. You're going to share some very interesting information. So before we get started, before we really tell people who you are, we're just going to mention a couple of words from our sponsors. Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Direct Health Access Laboratory. With over 3 million studies, they're deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges, all of which directly affect brain function. If you know what those measurements mean, you can directly address treatment failure, and they provide a global service with, a indeed, a molecular focus. Hook up your provider, your therapist, your counselor, your actually it has to be a medical professional. For these evolved testing measures with references and provider data at dhalab.com forward slash core. dhalab.com forward slash core. Listen to more insightful interviews on all of these tests at corebrainjournal.com forward slash 115, where the master will tell you about what these tests really mean out there on the streets of any town. And then Core Brain Journal is also brought to you by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia. They provide more complete options to address the complexity of adolescent treatment failure nationally and internationally as they serve TRICARE with advanced biomedical testing for treatment failure. And they have a whole in-house substance abuse program. We do biomedical testing. And for 80 years, they've provided residential care on an evolved family, interpersonal, and as I said before, a global level. For more detailed information, go to barryrobinson.org forward slash core. That's B-A-R-R-Y robinson.org forward slash core. More in a moment when we get midstream. So let me tell you a little more about Lorraine Key. I said that twice. Kwai. I... I got locked in on key. I apologize because I, I was thinking that that was the phonetic pronoun. Her last name is spelled Q-U-Y, and it's pronounced Kwai like the River Kwai, Bridge on the River Kwai. Sorry about that, Lorraine. She is an interesting person, was an FBI counterintelligence and undercover agent who exposed foreign spies and then recruited them to work for the U.S. government. A good FBI counterintelligence investigation uncovers new information about that spy to gain deeper insights into what influences their behavior and attitudes. So she's a pro talking to pros, analyzing pros in an effective way that would actually help them 
turn on their original mission. Lorraine's job was to dig beneath the surface, probe the unknown, and discover their real underlying identity. In the process, she ended up knowing more about the foreign spy than they actually knew about themselves. And she's got a great quote by Lao Tzu, he who conquers others is strong. He who conquers himself is mighty. Great quote. So then she talked about mental toughness, seeks wisdom and desires to grow, change, and explore. To possess an attitude of positivity and adventure, delights in truth and inspiration, loves life and lives fully. And I talked, I just talked to her a little bit here before we got started. Folks, you are going to enjoy this conversation. Now, Lorraine, at Bridge on River Kwai, Lorraine Kwai is going to start by telling us a little bit about how she got into this all the way back into her childhood. She was raised on a ranch, get this, folks, in Wyoming. Could you tell us a little more about that, Lorraine, so we get a picture of who you are? Sure. Thanks, Chuck. You know, I can't say that I always enjoyed living on a cattle ranch at 7,000 feet, especially in the middle of winter, but um, it taught me a lot about how to be mentally tough. An interesting thing, Chuck, when I interviewed for the FBI, Arizona State University, working on my master's, and one of the things that they really liked about me was the fact that I didn't grow up pampered. I didn't grow up with this entitled mindset. I was scrappy. I'd, I'd had to be scrappy in order to survive as a kid. And when they saw that, that was just one of the, the things that they really embraced about me. And I have just found that that mentality has gotten me so far in life. I think one of my favorite stories growing up was when I was on a bicycle and I was um, on a cow lane and going you know, down the river somewhere and a rattlesnake, I saw a rattlesnake in a, in a sagebrush bush over here and he lunged out at me and my bike flipped. And when I got, came to my senses, I could feel little pinpricks all over me. And I thought, oh my God, I have been bitten by this rattlesnake hundreds of times. And I'm two, two hours on dirt road to the nearest hospital. And I'm down the river by myself. I'm going to die. I was 10 years old at the time. I'm thinking, what a shame, dying at the age of 10. Then I realized I'd fallen into some cactus. And then I saw that the, my, the snake was caught up in the, in the wheel of my bike. And so... I promptly got up and got a rock and I made sure that that snake would never terrorize my cow lane again. And then I had to carry the whole sorry mess back to the bike because the bike was damaged. I had to carry it back a couple of miles back to the house. But I mean, you know, I grew up like that, just knowing I had to kind of fend for myself because that's just that environment. You can't cry or expect somebody to come and make it all better for you. I had to find a way to get back to the house myself. And so that was the kind of attitude I was brought up with and that the FBI embraced. Well, you know, I thought it was so interesting in our very brief conversation before we got started. I think just paint the picture a little more about how far away it was. You know, I mean, I don't know if you folks have ever been to Wyoming. I love Wyoming. I've been to Wyoming. We've had some great times up there at Yellowstone National Park. And, and, but the bottom line is it's a beautiful place. But listen to where Lorraine lived. Please tell us about it. Yes. And I do have fond memories of living up there, although they were hard times. So it was about 7,000 feet elevation, tough winters. 
And ranches in that country are very large. They sort of need to be just because we ran cattle. And so it was 10 miles from our ranch house to the last pasture on our ranch. And then from there was about a two hour drive to the nearest small town, which is Wheatland. And it wasn't because my family were rich, but we just couldn't make that drive every day to go to school. It'd be two hours one way, plus the winters were serious in that country. So we had a school right there in our in our yard, and the teacher came to live with that, that trailer house pulled in and a little schoolhouse built. And it was just my brother and I until I was in eighth grade. Then my grandfather died and we moved to his ranch, which is closer to the little town of Wheatland. So, I mean, you know, I, I was joking with you earlier, Chuck, I, I was a hill, hillbilly. I mean, you know, it's hard to put a shine on a sneaker. <laughs> I, had my, uh, I had my challenges cut out for me. You know, it's amazing to think about how far away you were and how, you know, this brings the whole idea of a one-room schoolhouse to a much more minuscule conception because you were you were in a, a trailer, basically, or a very small yes. RV. But anyway, so then how did you actually take that experience? And uh, you had your master's degree at, in Arizona, then interviewed you, and you, but how did you get over to the business that you were in to actually, is profiling the correct word on what you were doing? Is that an inaccurate word or is that correct? You know, truthfully, any good investigative agent, particularly a counterintelligence agent, is going to understand what makes people tick. And so I was not an official profiler. We have the behavioral science unit, and they are awesome people. And they will look at profile murderers, the whole whole range of federal violations, counterintelligence included. So since I settled into counterintelligence, my focus was primarily on people who had basically good values. They were not criminals, at least from their point of view. They were not in organized crime or drugs or anything like that. They were foreign spies trained by foreign governments to come to the United States and steal information that was of value to them. So my focus was much narrower than a true proof of profiler's focus would be. Well, it would have been more difficult, I would think, because with the real the true profiler, if I can spit it out, you would have had a much more obvious kind of problem that would be presented in the front end. Well, yes. And you know, anytime you're looking at, let's just say it's, it's an organized crime violation, people involved in that, there are ways that you can, what can I say? I don't want to use the word extort, but you can put pressure on them. You can, you can give them true motivations to cooperate with you for a lighter sentence, to work with their lawyer, whatever it happens to be. But when you're talking about foreign spies and espionage, it's more ideological. I mean, you're talking about, you need to go to the very core of who the person is as a person. Emotional intelligence, to use vernacular that you and I use every day in business, becomes super, super important because it's not only knowing yourself, so you can kind of predict how you will respond when you're confronted with the unknown, but also so that you can look at others. There's that empathy, but there's also even going deeper than that, it's like, what makes that person tick? Where are their pressure points? They have nothing to do with being locked up or thrown in jail because you know, they have to be motivated. And what motivates someone to perform to their, you know, to their best or in a way that is conducive to what you want to have happen? Well, it's interesting because you're almost talking about principles and values. 
what are their principles, what are their real values, and how, what are the soft spots in those values, which is a much more complex set of variables in, in my mind. Absolutely. Values is where it comes down to. I mean, if you've got, once you can understand what a person's values are, and by values, good values are those things that they control. I mean, we all know people who have bad values. Basically, those are things that other people control. Like, am I going to win this contest? Or am I, am I going to get rich? Or am I going to, you know, but a good values are based on, okay, the things that make me happy. I am doing something that gives me value and meaning. I have a good work ethic. I am in control of what happens to me. Those are good values. And so you're right when it comes to working. And you know, Chuck, the thing is, whether it's recruiting a spy or persuading somebody to work well with you or working with an employee to get the best out of them. It's the same thing, really. You want to understand that person. You want to understand what's important to them, where their values are, hopefully help them move towards good values, or at least in your opinion, that's what I would work, try to accomplish with an individual. If your values are with your family, then what are you doing to make sure your family's future is in, in the best hands. Maybe that means working with me instead of the Chinese or the Russians or whoever it happens to be. Well, that must have been difficult just getting into the whole situation. I mean, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about you being wherever, in Oshkosh or whatever, and meeting somebody you don't know, and then somehow ingratiating would be an incorrect word, but somehow getting into a relationship with them in some constructive higher degree of trust and intimacy absolutely that would, then, that would then take them to talking about themselves in some way how did all that happen i mean did could you tell us a little bit about that absolutely and that's where undercover work becomes essential and so i was both an undercover agent and the case agent for undercover agents. I always had undercover operation against every single individual I was investigating. To me, that's just step one. And you may, that, that individual may peel off. You find a way to get an undercover agent next to a subject of interest. You have that person run into them, talk to them, get a sense of what's important to them, see if there's a connection. And I always said, I talked to my undercover agents, whether it was another person or myself, and I'd say, the goal of this meeting is to get another meeting. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes it's just that, yeah, that yeah, simple, yeah. you know? I have an interesting story, though, when, it when I, I can tell you about my very first undercover operation. The first time, I was right out of Quantico, and my first office, and um, it was in Phoenix, and I, I can't remember what what I was working at the time, but the squad over across the room was working organized crime. And some guy needed an arm charm for a barbecue, just needed some dolly to go with him, right? <laughs> and he said, do you want to go? And I said, oh, yes, I want to go. <laughs> I've seen all the movies and I've read all the books and I know this is going to be exciting. So and I didn't really ask as many questions as I should have. So I left my gun at home and took a fake idea instead. And we showed up and this is a rough rough group. I mean, they were, we were investigating them for murder, for extortion, for drug dealing, for a lot of different things. It was in Phoenix. They took my handbag and put it in a spare room. And I went outside with this guy, this undercover agent that I really didn't know very well. And um, it was hot. And 
I needed some sunscreen. I had blonde hair and light skin and I was burning. So I went back in and I went into the room where the handbag was and I saw two women going through my handbag and I had one of those, oh shit moments, you know, (laughs) okay, I'm not going to be cool about this. But then three guys came into the room and they closed the door. And at that point, my only goal was to get out of that room unharmed. So they started asking me a lot of questions about who I was and what my background was and, and why I was there and who was the jerk that I had come with. And so I knew right away I had better be as honest with them as I could possibly be. And this is where authenticity comes in. This is where, you know, just being who is being as transparent as I could possibly be. And I told them all about growing up in Wyoming. I told them my love of horses and dogs and animals. I told them I needed to get out of Wyoming while I still could, or I probably would never. And one of the women started to nod, and I knew I was reaching her because she said, I come from Kansas, and I know exactly what you mean. And so anyway, the bottom line is I was as honest with them about who I was as I could possibly be. I told them everything except my true name and where I worked. And I learned something that day, very important. I got out of that room unharmed. The the agent I was with, I learned that a hit was put out in him the following week, and Mm -hmm. the FBI transferred him to another city. It sounded bad the way you said it. It sounded like they were onto him. They were onto him. And I wasn't smart enough when I said, when I held up my hand to go with him to ask a few more questions. But the bottom line is this, is that no matter what title you slap on, what position you think you hold or what title you have, what was really important is that you be who you are. And so when I worked undercover, I always remembered that. I was always Lorray. Maybe I was a different name, but that didn't matter. My values are what came through. The things that were important to me are what came through. And if we didn't connect, that's fine. I try to get enough reading off of that person to know, you know, this guy, this is what he's interested in. But I never got into trouble working undercover, except when I tried to be somebody I wasn't. Mm. And I don't know if that answers your question or not, but you know, I've kind of taken that with me in everything I do in life, whether it be working with other undercover agents or interviewing people, but I am who I am and I'm pretty comfortable with that. And I've had pretty good success in just being Lorraine and not trying to be somebody else. So that's so interesting. So what happened was, Everything about you was authentic and real, except your mission with that meeting. Yes, exactly right. You just got metaphorically completely undressed in yes. terms of everything about you. So, And yes. because you would not be disingenuous in that regard, because you're actually talking quite explicitly about your pain, your experience, your problems, then they develop trust because they are smart. They're intuitively aware that you're not handing a line. You're really talking about who you actually are. So because the preponderance of what you said was real, they didn't chase you down on ID. They just didn't chase you down on the ID. And in fact, what you said to them was so acceptable. There was no reason to chase down who you were because it didn't matter what your name was in that situation because you were a loner and you were gone and you, you wanted to be gone. And and you just didn't want to be around where you had been and you were, you were on an escape. You were leaving and, and uh, away. That's exactly right. And as I mentioned, that another woman there just nodded and I knew I had hit. And that's the thing about working undercover is that you talk to somebody 
and this is a, something we did in, in, um, at Quantico when I went back for what we call in-services, but it was an undercover training course. I think it was like two weeks, something like that. But what we would do is meet somebody and have like maybe three minutes or five, depending, to explore what you had in common. And they did this with, they brought people in. It wasn't other agents because, you know, other agents, it would be easy. But they mm-hmm. brought people in from the community. And we had no idea who they were. And we just start talking to them. And you would be surprised. You can just start talking to somebody and you can find something in common, whether it's a book or a movie or current topic, environment. You'd be surprised how quickly, if you work at it, you can find something in common. It's like your typical cocktail conversation, mm-hmm. you know? You're yeah. desperate trying to find something in common with this person. And you, you don't have to come across as desperate, but you become agile. You become quite yeah. agile in yeah. mixing up your topics and coming back around and following up on something that you know somebody said. And you know, Chuck, what it comes down to is paying attention to the other person. Because That's- truthfully... So many times we're focused on ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're focused on what we want to say in response to what someone else is saying. And it's all about us. But if you divest yourself and focus on that other person, it becomes much easier. Well, and they feel that concern. I think then they, they're going to understand that you care on a certain level. You may not care about everything they do, but on a, on a personal level, you care about them and you're really making a genuine effort to try to connect with them in a real way. And they feel in a difficult time of espionage and whatever's going on there, they feel accepted and um, approved of in a certain way because you're listening and you're enjoying that part of the conversation. So they're not alone. And then that would be an element of trust would would be built on the fact that they are truly connected with another human being. You just described and defined what a charismatic person is all about. Because Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the day, or the end of the day, it's all about having the charisma and the likability to get people to think like you or to want to hear more about what you have to say. It's what it's all about. That's interesting. So how did you actually get into the more evolved situation? I've never talked to a person like you before. So I mean, in a way, I don't know how to even formulate the question, but I start thinking about the difficulties that would be uh, present in trying to convert a person to actually start talking about what their values were, and then trying to counterpose those values, which may be involved with more of a um, country that does not have a democratic direction? And then how do you actually start to move that whole conversation around? That'd be interesting. Sure. For myself, the first thing, my first goal in meeting people, actually anybody, but particularly a target of my undercover operation, would be to find what we have in common. Mm-hmm. To identify what I once walked into a room and I knew what the guy looked like. And I, there were like 500 people at this conference. And I was looking for it because I wanted to bump into him somehow. And that, you know, that's a big room. And so I saw him sitting there. And I mean, I pushed my way through because I was determined to be the one to sit next to him. But then I didn't want to be too obvious. Exactly. Because one thing they're told about, you know, do not trust any American. I mean, that when a foreign spy comes to the United States, they are on high paranoid alert. Mm-hmm. And so I just said hello, and I didn't even try to talk to him. And there was a break, and, and it was an all-day thing, so I didn't rush it. And I pulled out, and at that time, I was reading a wonderful book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Ken Percy. And that was, 
Yes, it's a great book. And it was in the days before Kindle. And so I actually had, you could actually see what I was reading. Right? Yeah. And I just started reading it. I was just ignoring him because I got up and got some coffee or whatever. And there was long, and it was to network. And I saw a few people, but I came back and I just started to read. And he didn't know anybody there either. And that intrigued him. He goes, "My, what is that book? What's that book about? And so then we just started talking about Persig's book. And I knew right away he was a person who um, was interested in, um, it was a deep thinker. Yeah. Actually. I mean, that, uh, yeah, yeah. And that was golden. That told me just about everything I needed to know to take it to the next step. And of course, it's always you know, I'm a female. I was uh, single at the time. So I always wore a wedding band. Mm-hmm. And I always had one of the guys on my squad as a husband. If yeah. I needed to produce one. So yeah. I just, you know, those were just the kind of things. Be safer, really, yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to give the wrong message. And they were all married. The guys, usually they're the spies, diplomats that come over to the United States as foreign spies are married for the same reason. And so it was a very adult, respectful kind of dialogue yeah. we had. Mm-hmm. And then I started asking him a little bit about, you know, what he was doing, what he was doing at that conference. And so I was able then to, when I saw him the next time, to pick up where we had left off. And so sometimes you just don't know. You have to just try what you know and so or what you think will work. And eventually it became very obvious to me that to take that relationship to the next level, it would have to be a guy. Because I, was, I did not know. It couldn't be you because, because of your feelings. It couldn't feeling. be me for yeah. a couple of yeah. reasons. He would the intimacy probably, thing, yeah. Exactly, exactly right. And he might meet me as FBI as well. So I, w- I was the, what you call the cutout. And then I went to an agent I knew who had a lot of experience, who was very heartfelt. He was the kind of guy who could talk to you for two hours about mm-hmm. his feelings and all that kind of stuff. He was a real touchy-feely. And mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of those in the FBI. Yeah, right. And so he's, he's valuable to me. And so yeah. I said, hey, you've got to get next to this guy. And so that's how we took it. And I was cut out. And that's what we call ourselves, a cutout. And then the other guy was brought in. And he took it all the way to the end. But I was the case agent. And so we would come back. And I knew him well enough that subject of the investigation, I could say, okay, he's an idealist. It will always be on the idealist point of approach rather yeah. than a payoff or yeah. you know, something like that. And so everybody's different. Well, and that's what the book is about. If you really get down to him, I think he, I mean, it's been a long time, many years since I, in fact, that book got me onto a motorcycle a long, long time ago. <laughs> I, I wound up, my, my cousin had a motorcycle and, uh, and we were in Philadelphia and, uh, but the thing about the Persig book, for those of you who don't know about it, is there was one guy who had a very fine, high, expensive, high cost, super duper BMW, which at the time that that book came out was the quintessential road bike, R69S, whatever. I don't remember what the code, but it was something like that. And then Persig, or the person who was had something like a Suzuki that was misfiring and not working well. But he, through his skill, had a greater relationship with the machine and on a deeper level was actually able to fix the machine in a constructive way on a motorcycle trip, whereas the person with the BMW, which is noted for its endurance and wonderful motoric uh, construction, fell apart or was broken somehow. And of course, there was a, that's the metaphor of going deep because you go deep, you, can, you have a utilitarian value to relationships. And that was, in that particular case, it was a metaphor for his relationship with his son, but 
it still worked for the motorcycle. Yes, it did. And you know, it's interesting, uh, and I'm not going to say that all foreign spies are deep thinkers or whatever, but Mm -hmm. they are usually, I respect them. They're usually more intelligent. They're not your typical drug dealer or drug runner or organized crime type where their motivation probably is more in how many zeros after that number I can be bought off. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say that that's easier because in a lot of ways it's, it's more dangerous. Those guys play a different kind of game. Mm-hmm. But counterintelligence officers and spies that I ran against, by and large, were people that I could respect and that did have that inner focus. They were doing something that was about more than just money or mm-hmm. things. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, I'm going to ask you another question in just a second. I'm enjoying this conversation so much, but there's a question that comes to my mind. And because we're out there in the cold, as they say, we are now thinking, I'm sure a number of our audience are thinking what I'm thinking. And I'm going to ask you this question, and then we'll have a little break, and we'll come back and listen to the answer. But I think in identifying with you, in my empathetic response of being with you in those moments, I'm also thinking what it would be like, and would like to ask you, what was your most dangerous moment and how did you get out of it? You know, what was the situation that you think that you, your socks were rolled up and down on that situation and you were just happy you made it through and here's how you made it through. In just a moment, we'll be back folks. And what we're going to do is ask Lorray that question back in just a moment. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com forward slash core. Well, Lorray Kwai, thank you so much for coming with us. This is very interesting. I mean, this is something none of us really get a chance to talk to a person like yourself. And we really, before we close, when we wind up the conversation, we want to really hear more about what you do. But right now we're in the midst of this story. We're out there in the cold and we're thinking about you and the intelligent, thoughtful, deep person that you are coming close to being in a really bad spot. Could you tell us about that, please? I can, Chuck. And it was a frightening experience. It was actually my first arrest. And FBI agents like plans. They plan investigations. They plan arrests. But the thing is with agents, we always look for the positive side, but we never assume that everything's going to go perfect. And I learned that. Uh, Now I know why they do that. Because we had, I was uh, in the shotgun seat 
Well, I'll go back. So we had information that a man who was um, kidnapped a child, actually, and I can't remember, I, I can't remember if the child had died or not, but at any rate, we knew that he was armed and dangerous. We knew that, and we really wanted to get that guy off the street. So I was not the case agent. My training agent was. So we had the guy on surveillance, and the way we had worked it out was that the guy, because he was armed and dangerous, would be arrested by our FBI SWAT team. And so since we didn't know what was going on inside that house, we got the address, we set up surveillance, he came out, we knew it was him, we could ID him, we decided to just arrest him after he got into the car and away from the house, because we didn't know if there were guns in the house aiming at us, we didn't know, thought it'd be safer to do a car arrest. So this was in Scottsdale, Scottsdale Road, in the morning, and we expected there to be a lot of traffic and lots of stoplights, lots of opportunity for a car arrest. Well, believe it or not, no red lights, no red boards, nothing. He just kept going. And then the traffic started to get a little heavier. Ron, my case agent, was determined to stay on his heels. So we were, there was like three lanes and we were on the far lane. And I kept looking back, like, where are the SWAT agents? And one by one, they were getting cut off by traffic in the back. Ron was determined to stay with him. We got to the first red light. And he's right beside me. I mean, the guy that we're looking for is just in the driver's seat right next to me. Ron looks at me and says, you're it. And I'm going, you're kidding me. And everything that we had trained for and planned just had to go right out the window. And so I'd never made, I'd never arrested a real person before. I mean, we made all these fake arrests at Quantico, but you know, we had red handle guns there too, and they don't actually shoot. So I took off my raid jacket was the first thing I did because I didn't want him to know who I was. And then I pulled my sweater over my gun and I got out of the car and I think he kind of noticed something over here to the side, but he was looking straight ahead, waiting for the light to turn green. And I said, you know, he's not going to expect me. So I just tapped on his window and smiled and asked him to roll his window down. And he kind of smiled back and was wondering what was going on and rolled his window down. And I said, FBI, you're under arrest. And he was just so shocked. And his foot slipped off the clutch. It was one of those stick shifts. And it lurched into the intersection. And I stayed with him the whole time. And this, it stalled. And I could hear somebody crashing somewhere around me. But I just held it on him until the SWAT team could come running up. And then they actually pulled him out. He did have a gun under the seat. But the thing I learned from that really is the importance of having an agile and flexible mindset. You know, when we come in with this structured way of looking at life, looking at obstacles, looking at roadblocks, sometimes we just have to let go of what we think we know. And it's like with a good investigation, I tell you, I was never handed an investigation where I knew the answer or I knew how to prove it. You had, I had to work all the way around and explore many possibilities to find that soft underbelly. And to your listeners, I would say the same thing. Having a flexible and agile mindset is so important if you want to be mentally tough. Because mental toughness is really about uh, managing your thoughts and your emotions and your behavior in ways that will set you up for success. So to do that, you really do sometimes need to be flexible in the way you think. So that's interesting because it's what an interesting message that is because so many of us get driven in terms of our 
objectives. You know, you have an objective and you get stuck. You're in a track. You're uncomfortable with the objective, and as you must have been at that moment at the light. And it'd be perfectly natural for you to get completely stuck and just bag the entire situation because it turned, it was looking like it was turning pretty far south right there in the midst of everything. The variables were escalating and you were having to, you know, stay with the variables, which you did do. You were persistent. But the issue then was, in fact, what you said, you're, you got out of the track that you were in, entered another reality, entered a different reality. And that reality was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride this train. I was at the station a moment ago when the window came down. I'm hopping on the train right now, and I'm gone. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I still get nervous when I talk about that story. My palms and my hands are sweating because it was a frightful experience. But the other thing, too, is I learned that I can be flexible. I can go with the flow and always keeping my objective in mind. And when I think about the first of the year, I have to tell you, this is a, that whole scenario comes back to me because so often, at least I will talk, speak for myself, but I will have this goal, right? Or this, this vision I have for what is going to happen in 2018 or 2017 or whatever, or maybe the next three years. It's this vision I have. And I set my set lots of little goals up to reach that vision. But what I rarely do around the first of the year, or at least a point in time of the year, is check to make sure that vision is still on track. Because if it's not, then I may have to tweak those goals to get there, right? And when I think about that particular experience, it's a good reminder that I always need to keep in mind what is the bigger picture. In that situation, it was to make the arrest. But in my case, now it may be to write a different book or whatever Whatever it is for each of us has something different. But it's just a reminder to always to keep that in mind. Well, you know, this has been such an interesting conversation. I really do hate to wind it up to tell you the truth. And, and Lorraine has some things for us, folks, that are really interesting. It has to do with mental toughness. And you can see that her toughness has an interesting, just as we were just in this brief conversation, an interesting softness with it. It's almost like being soft enough in certain circumstances is generated by a certain measure of toughness so that that flexibility is the manifestation of the toughness. Well, yes. And you know, the thing is, when people a lot of times will come to me and they say, oh, I want to be mentally tough. And they think it's bulldozing their way through obstacles and problems. And that might work in football, but it does not work in life. And a lot of the times to be mentally tough, you have to divest yourself of your ego enough that you can find a way to get through that obstacle or that roadblock or whatever is in front of you in a way that works for you. And sometimes that means you have to change, but it doesn't mean you, you give up on it, but it does mean you have to be smart enough to find the right way through. And I think mental toughness is really just about being smart enough, a great deal of it in a way. Yeah, smart enough to really have the big picture. I completely yeah. agree with you because the easy thing when you're frightened is to lose the big picture. It's so easy. And you didn't lose the big picture at that moment when the window was down. You had the big picture there at the front of your mind. And in that situation, because you had it, you were able to flex with the reality that changed so dramatically. And you know, Chuck, the other thing I want to encourage your, your listeners is it's really important to identify your strengths. You need to know your weaknesses, but don't spend a lot of time trying to make 
transform weaknesses into strengths. I want to be honest with myself about what my weaknesses are, and I want to learn how to manage them. And then I want to know what my strengths are, and I want to build my strengths. And so in that situation, I knew I didn't look like an FBI agent. I think I knew I'd look like some dolly out there that this guy was going, oh, is it my lucky day? I mean, <laughs> so you go with what your strengths are. And I didn't let that bother me. You know, I, I'm not going to see myself as, you know, I'm going to use what strengths I have. And I just stuck with him. And I didn't pay attention to what was happening over here when somebody crashed because I was shocked to see a gun in the middle of the intersection of Scottsdale Road. I mean, you know, and I think that's, again, stay focused. Well, you know, in closing, you have something absolutely apropos of what you were just talking about for our listeners. And we wanted to encourage them to go over and download this. I'm looking forward to downloading it myself. I, we just had the conversation a few minutes ago. But let's talk about that download that you have over at your site, please. Absolutely. If you go to my website, lorayquai.com, you will find a 45-question mental toughness assessment. And it will measure, give you, it's got great feedback and ways that you manage your thoughts, your emotions, and behaviors. And these are all components of, of mental toughness because if you can't manage them, it's going to be hard you don't want them dictate to you. You don't want your emotions or your thoughts, your behavior dictate to you what is going to be successful. You want to be dictating to them. And so this assessment is absolutely free and it will give you that feedback. I think will be very helpful for you in determining maybe where you need to work or also identifying those areas where you're very strong. Well, those of you who are listening in the car, I'm going to spell out Lorraine Kwai. So you get it. It's L-A-R-A-E. Q-U-Y.com. And if you pop over there, you can get those 45 questions about mental toughness and assessment, your own personal assessment. I mean, I can think of this working even in an adolescent treatment center, to tell you the truth, because it doesn't matter where you are. If you start thinking about yourself that way and practicing that kind of devoted ideal of really staying with and, and husbanding your objectives uh, consistently then you'd be in great shape. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on board. Now, did you have a book? You were talk about writing a book. Are you in the process or have you written a book as well? Uh, my first book was Secrets of a Strong Mind. And uh, my publisher and I are relaunching that book. We're revising it and relaunching it this coming spring, 2018. And I would encourage you to jot that name down, Secrets of a Strong Mind, and then go back and take a look at it later and follow me on social media and I'll be alerting everybody when that does come out. And my second book is uh, Mental Toughness for Women Leaders. And we never really talked that much about the difference or lack of difference between male versus female brains and the way we think and look at our obstacles. But that book will also be available on either Kindle or it's on Amazon, either as a book or Kindle. Okay. Now what's going to happen, Lorraine, is I'm inviting you back officially right now. <laughs> for you to come back and talk about that, that book, because it's so completely relevant to a number of the uh, guests that we've had on professionals talking. I mean, it's such an absolutely important current concept of problems. Yes, it it's a solution for the games that are going on there on the, the gender specific games that are going on out there. Absolutely. So we're going to officially invite you back right here in front of everybody to go ahead and go over that book. Okay. So as soon as it comes yeah. out, you, you hook it up and we'll, and we'll talk about the differences between men and women and that's in the leadership roles and, and what, are the, what are the positives and what are the challenges that they have to face. 
Sounds awesome. All right. So with that, we're going to push on, folks. So thank you so much, Lorraine, for coming on board here. We really appreciate it. And uh, I know everybody here is that. I mean, we've taken a very interesting trip with you. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Chuck. I truly enjoyed it. We'll have you back. <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.